On Tuesday night next, at about 6.30, an airplane will lift off from SeaTac, carrying 38 of us to, Be- to Berlin, where we will begin a two-week journey through the land of the Reformation, Germany, Switzerland, England, and Scotland. We will be studying the confessions of our church uh, in the sites in which they were written, and we will stand before the churches and in the houses of the homes of the men and women who were the, the, who were the heart of the Reformation. Uh, I, we trust that it will be a great experience of learning and spiritual growth. And I would ask, uh, while we are gone, for you to pray for us. You'll find the names in your bulletin there. Please hold us up for pre- uh, travel safety and, and also for a, a wonderful experience, uh, spiritually, historically, and fellowship-wise. After we put our friends on the airplane two weeks from now, uh, Cindy and Rachel and I will remain. And Cooper, apparently I, I miswrote this in a way that got everyone confused. My, grand, my mom and dad are going to bring Cooper over. We figured that the, the nuances of, of Reformation history might be lost on our four-year-old. So he'll join us after the tour in St. Andrews, Scotland. And the, we will stay there, the four of us and my folks, for a little while for, uh, for sabbatical. And I will return to the pulpit in September, September 10. Uh, this is an opportunity that your session has offered to me, in fact, to all of our pastoral staff every seven years for a time of rest and recuperation study. I'll be reading. I've got a pile of 18, my, my guilt pile is rising on the, on the desk of 18 books that I want to be reading this summer. And I look forward to seeing you back in the fall when we begin our series on Exodus. I do not expect that this church is any way going to falter or slow down during this time. I would be disappointed to discover otherwise. You have a wonderful staff, great pastors, a great session and great deacons. And I will expect and pray and hope for the report when I return that, uh, that things have just moved ahead with great in energy and alacrity and, and joy and fervor. And anything less than that, I will be very disappointed in the church here at Chapel Hill because that's not who you are. So have a great summer, and I shall see you when, I, when we return. Nine months ago and 32 sermons ago, we began our series, we began our journey. Today we come to an end. You know, I've seen times in the past where I would have stretched this baby out for three and a half years, so you really ought to count yourself fortunate. We'd be parsing what the particular demon meant, uh, every one of them. On September 12th, I preached my first sermon, and it was titled, There is no S in Revelation. Remember that? If you've learned nothing else, then you ought to know that it is the book of Revelation. Does it, now, do you cringe when you hear other people saying Revelations? You have this kind of smug look on your face that says, oh, you don't really know what you're talking about. Well, we know it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. How many were here for the first sermon? All right. How many started coming to Chapel Hill since we began this sermon series? Raise your hand. Any of you came because you heard we were preaching on a series on Revelation? Yeah, I didn't think so. How many left because they heard we were preaching? (laughs) That's the important question. Many people wondered why I would do such a thing. And at first glance, all of it appeared pretty confusing, didn't it? Including to myself. But if you recall, in September, we were 110 days away from what was projected to be global meltdown. Remember? Y2K. Everyone was thinking about the end of the world. It seemed a good time to find out what God's Word has to say about final things. Well, that turned out to be much ado about nothing. Uh, But uh, the final things are still critical, for that time shall come. Besides, I pointed out to you the first sermon that this is the only book in Scripture that promises a blessing for those who study it. The only one. A blessing. Dragons and demons and plagues and worldwide catastrophes. How could that be a blessing? It didn't seem 
very promising, but that's what was promised. And so we plunged in. And now 32 weeks later, here we are. And so I ask you, was it a blessing for you? It was for me. It was for me. It was the hardest sermon series that I've ever preached on. I worked more on this sermon, uh, on every one of these texts, than any other sermon I have ever uh, preached on. But in the end, it was a tremendous blessing for me. And I pray it has been for the church that we have pursued our mission statement of bringing everyone mature in Christ by digging into the meat of this great book. So let us conclude this morning. Our text this morning is from that section of the Revelation which is known as the epilogue, which means literally after the word. Prologue, before the word. Epilogue, after the word. And as you listen to the reading of this scripture this morning, I want you to listen for a recapitulation of the themes that we have heard, that we have touched on throughout the entire book. I won't be able to preach on all of them this morning, but I think you'll find at least five of them in there. Five different themes that we've heard touched on throughout the book. See how you do. Let's pick it up. Revelation chapter 22, beginning with verse 7. Behold, I am coming soon, Jesus says. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy in this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I had heard and seen them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had been showing them to me. But he said to me, Do not do it. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers, the prophets, and all, of all who keep the words of this book. Worship God. Then he told me, Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, because the time is near. Let him, him who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let him who is vile continue to be vile. Let him who does right continue to do right. And let him who is holy continue to be holy. Behold, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to everyone according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds anything to them, God will add to them the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes words away from this book of prophecy, God will take away from him his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. And they all said, Let us pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts truly be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. For Jesus' sake, amen. If you were to sum up the major themes of the book of Revelation into two points, what would they be? I won't wait for this answer because that might take a while. I want to suggest two of them to you this morning. I don't know if they're the right ones, but they are two that present themselves as I have studied this book now, and particularly as we look at this conclusion, which I assume John intended to be that. 
a kind of a summing up of what we've seen. If we were to sum it up into two points, what would they be? Here is the first major theme of the book of Revelation, I would suggest. Worship. It is worship. The book of Revelation is a book about worship. It is a book of worship. Have you ever read another book in the Bible that focused so much on the glory and the majesty and the wonder of our God? Anywhere? Some of our most beloved hymns are taken from this book. You heard one earlier today. Holy, holy, holy. Right out of this book. Many of our wonderful praise songs are taken directly from the passages of the Revelation. Handel's great hallelujah chorus comes right out of this book and so it goes. It is a book of worship. The opening chapter, and you may not remember, but it begins with a doxology. And by the way, doxology, doxa means glory. Glory. So a doxology is to give glory. When we sing the doxology, we're praising God from whom all blessings flow. The first chapter begins with a doxology. Here it is. To him who lives, who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. And then we move to chapter 4. Do you remember chapter 4 during Advent? We were in the great throne room of heaven. God was seated on his throne and there was around him a, a rainbow that emanated from the throne like an emerald rainbow. Do you remember he was surrounded by 24 other thrones and on every one of those thrones was seated an elder. There you go, elders. Got a place reserved for you. And there were four odd and amazing beasts that surrounded the throne and all, and these beasts cried out all day and all night, holy, 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 the very words we sang this morning, Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. And the scripture told us that every time the beast said that, and remember they said it all day, all night, all the time. So every time the beast said that, the elders would fall down to their faces and worship God. And they would say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. I don't imagine the elders were sitting in their thrones very much, do you? It sounds like they were on the face before God all the time because they were created for the purpose of declaring the praiseworthiness of God. In chapter 5, the Lamb of God appears. Do you remember that part of the story? They said, who is worthy to break the seal? The Lamb of God is worthy to break the seal. And once again, the heavens broke out in worship. This time it was in song. First it was the elders and it was the creatures who sang his praise. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain And with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. But that wasn't enough, for the Lamb has come. And so now the angels join in. We are told it was an angelic choir that numbered ten thousands, time ten thousands. And they join in the singing with this new song, Worthy is the Lamb, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. But that's not enough either. The elders, the creatures, the 10,000 times 10,000 angelic choir. Now we read every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea joins in the chorus. And they sing with all of the rest of the creatures to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. They praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever and ever. That's just chapter 5. In chapter 7, the 144,000 who were sealed by God worship him. And the angels and the elders and the creatures join in again. In chapter 11, after the two witnesses are martyred and resurrected, once again, the elders and the angels break out in praise. 
In chapter 14, once again, the 144,000 sing praise to God. In chapter 15, there is worship. In chapter 16, there is worship. In chapter 19, there's the great hallelujah chorus of worship. Revelation is one glorious chorus after another in praise of the one true, eternal, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God. And finally, in chapter 22, this chapter, the book ends with John in worship. He has just seen the vision of New Jerusalem, and John is so taken by what he sees, sees that he falls down in worship. But there's a problem, isn't there? What is the problem? What's the problem with this worship? Who is he worshiping? The angel. He's worshiping the angel. He worships the messenger. And the angel's response is, thanks a lot. I enjoy this. No, the angel's response is, don't do it. I'm a fellow servant. Just with the prophets and the rest of you, I'm but a servant, a creation of God. Do not worship me. Well, maybe we can let that go. John was excited. He's just seen this vision of New Jerusalem. We can appreciate how he might be all hepped up. He just got carried away, right? Wrong. He did the same thing back in chapter 19, verse 10. Exactly the same thing. At this, he says, I fell at the angel's feet to worship him. And he said, don't do it. In both cases, the angel concludes with the same rebuke, the same words to John, which is, worship God. Worship God. Only God. Humankind was created to worship. We were created to worship. That's a great thing. We have it in our souls to worship. Here's the bad thing. We are prone to worship everything but the one who deserves our worship. We are prone to worship everything but the one who deserves our worship. Like John, we find ourselves falling down and worshiping not the creator, but the creation. Whether it is an angel in heaven or an angel on earth, whether it is Britney Spears or Michael Jordan or NSYNC or the person in the mirror, we are prone to worship the wrong thing. It's what gets us in trouble. It's what got us kicked out of the garden. We run into this even in the study of the very book we are concluding. There are too many people who have become so focused on the message of Revelation, the timetable, the predictions, the prophecies, and all of their complex theories about how it should be interpreted. They become so obsessed with the revelation that they neglect the revealer. Eugene Peterson says this, a lengthy quote, but I want you to hear it. The way St. John's book of Revelation has been treated by many of his readers is similar to the way he himself treated the revealing angel. It is difficult to worship God instead of his messengers. And so people get interested in everything in this book except God. Losing themselves in symbol hunting, intrigue with numbers, speculating with frenzied imaginations on times and seasons, despite Jesus' severe stricture against it. The number of intelligent and devout people prostrate before the angel, deaf to his rebuke, is depressing and inexcusable. For nothing is more explicit in this book than that it is about God. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Not the revelation of the end of the world, not the identity of the Antichrist, not the timetable of history. Nothing in the book is comprehensible except through faith in Jesus Christ. And nothing has meaning apart from his lordship. But, and here's, I love this line, but because we are always attracted by the spectacular and the emotional, in the apocalypse, that is the revelation, we generally become interested 
in what is only an envelope. If our study has accomplished one thing, here's what I hope it has accomplished. Through the imagery, through vision, through color, through pictures, through this MTV cartoon experience that the book of Revelation so often is, it has brought us into the presence of the Holy One and the Lamb of God seated upon their throne. And having entered into their presence, we have been so overwhelmed by their glory from time to time that we have had to fall down in praise and worship of those Expressions of the Godhead. If we have learned better how to worship God this year, then God has accomplished his goal through his apostle John. That's one great theme, worship. Here is the second that I would suggest. Expectation. We, the church, the bride of Christ, ought to live in joyful expectation of the return of our Lord. It is captured in one word which we heard repeated again and again throughout this book. What is the word? Did you see it in this text today? What's the one word that captures this sense of expectation? I'll let you think about it. In chapter 1, we heard it three times. In chapter 1 alone, we heard it three times. And now we come here and John draws us to the end and the word plays out like a drumbeat. It's like Pastor Stewart on the conga slapping out a cadence for us to hear it. It is come, come, come coming. You see it? Look at, ver- look at your text with me. Verse 7. Behold. Read it with me. <coughs> Behold, I am coming soon. Say it again. Behold, I am coming soon. Look at verse 12. Read it with me. Behold, I am coming soon. Verse 17. Three times. This, read it with me. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. And then verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Do you think he's trying to make a point? Jesus' clear teaching and that of his disciples is that Jesus will return one day. Listen again to the words that the angels uttered in Acts as Jesus was ascending to the heavens. This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. It is the promise of Jesus. It is the expectation of the church that someday Jesus Christ will return for us. And what was the consistent theme that characterized Jesus' discussion of his own return? It was expectancy. It was urgency. Jesus said, I will come like a thief in the night. He said, I will come like a bridegroom in the middle of the night. He said, I will come like the master who returns unexpectedly from a long trip. And what are we to do about it, he says? Be ready. Expect his return. Be ready. Be prepared for his imminent return. The bridesmaids have to have enough oil in their lamps. The servants need to have invested the money wisely which the master entrusted to their care. For two millennia we have awaited the fulfillment of Jesus' words in the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. For two millennia the church has continued to pray the prayer which Paul wrote in the Aramaic in 1 Corinthians when he says, Maranatha. Do you know what Maranatha means? Come, Lord. That is the shortest prayer in scriptures. Come, Lord. For two millennia we have longed for the consummation that we express when we read together the Apostles' Creed. He shall come to judge the quick and the dead. 
But perhaps after these 2,000 years, we are inclined to say, so when? When is he coming? It's been 2,000 years. When will Jesus return? I don't know. And the ones who tell you they know are wrong. Not only they are wrong, I think they are risking the very curse that the last chapter of this Bible tells them they will bring upon themselves when they add to the words of this book. We don't know when Jesus is coming back. He did not say. In fact, he says, I don't even know. Now, if Jesus says, I don't know, what are the chance we're going to figure it out? So then we say, why didn't Jesus give us more hints? Why didn't he give us a detailed timeline so that we could be ready? And I think it's for at least one very important reason. Jesus Christ wants us to live as if we were, he were coming back this very moment. He wants us to live in the eternal present, the now. Jesus doesn't want us to live in our past, either because of the guilt and the shame of our failures, or because of our arrogant pride of our successes, or our gilded memories of a bygone era. And Jesus doesn't want us to live either in the future, wondering about the future, speculating about the future, worrying about the future, counting down to the future. Jesus wants us to live right now. He wants us to be present to the present. Not looking or leaning towards some future distant date, but resting in the glorious gift of this moment. There is no future for us. It is always the now. We, are always, we can only live in the now. Jesus is not just the one who was and the one who is to come. When we hear him described in chapter 1 and chapter 22, he is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, yes. But he was the one who was, the one who is, and the one who is to come. Jesus' kingdom is not just something that's in the future. Jesus' kingdom is already. It is now. It is present in you. Did you know that? The kingdom of Jesus is present in you, the church. It is present because of the gift of the Spirit, Pentecost. The kingdom of God has already come. It is not complete. It has not been consummated. But it is already right now. And we are to live in the right now. It is the other great theme of Revelation. Jesus is coming, 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 right now, right now, right now, soon. You recall a few months ago I told you about our new free kitty, which ended up costing us hundreds of dollars in vet bills because no sooner we got in her home we discovered she had a... Well, against all odds, Kit made it and has become a beloved member of our family. And then two weeks ago, Kit disappeared. In the first couple of days, we continued to hold out hope for her return. Perhaps she was lost. Perhaps she was enjoying the outdoors as she was becoming acclimated to it. But as one night became two, became three, became four, frankly, I lost hope. I think a dog or a raccoon probably got her. And in typical male fashion, I was ready to face the facts and close the door on that chapter and move on. But every morning for the first week, when I went out to go to work early in the morning, I would discover our garage door. It was cracked open six inches, just as it was when Kit was still with us. That was her access home. That was how she got into her little bed. And no matter how late it was, the doorway was always open 
to welcome her back into her place. And when I saw that cracked open garage door seven days after this cat's disappearance, I was reminded of the enduring love and hopefulness of my beloved wife. Against all odds, with everything appearing hopeless, Cindy was out every night before we went to bed, opening the garage door on the chance that Kit might return. Finally, however, even Cindy gave up. The garage door stayed down. Kit was gone. We were certain of it. At least we adults were certain of it. Because every night, Rachel still prays the same prayer. God, please bring Kit back. We have planted a flower in Kit's honor to help Rachel deal with the reality of it, but it still doesn't matter. Every night, it's, God, please bring Kit back. And even after all this time, even after the flower has been planted and the words of remembrance spoken, spoken, Rachel is still waiting, still hoping, still expecting, still praying for Kit's return. We adults call it denial. The Bible calls it hope. I wish I could live my life with the same fervent expectancy about the imminent return of Jesus. What difference would that make in my behavior today if I believed he really was coming back any moment? What difference would that make in the choices that I make about how I spend my time? What difference would that make in the things I choose to do in the way of hugging my kids versus reading another book to prepare What difference would it make in my family and my spending habits and my business and my language and my thought life if I really thought any moment Jesus Christ is going to appear? What difference would it make in yours? The book of Revelation teaches us to worship. And here's the other thing I hope it has taught us to do. I hope it has cracked open our garage door. I hope it has transformed the words, Jesus is coming soon, from being a creedal statement into being the drumbeat of our life. Coming, coming, coming. Jesus is coming soon. May it be so. May it be so. Maranatha, say it with me. Maranatha, say it with me. Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. As the ushers come forward, let us pray. And so, Father, we come to the end of this book and to the beginning of the rest of the life that you have called us to. May we worship you better, more effectively, more passionately, because we have read a book that talks about worship in ways that we have never seen before. And may we live lives that are expectant that demonstrate our anticipation that you are coming back someday for us, however long that may be, may we live as if it would be this moment. Jesus is coming. We're going to give you some of our wealth, Father. We sometimes treat our money as if we really don't believe these things. And we better hold on for dear life to it because who knows what the future holds. Well, God, you have it. You have the future. And so I pray that we would begin to learn to give also as persons who really believe that Jesus is coming. But we pray these things in the name of him. Amen.